Section 8 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Matthew by J. C. Ryle Chapter 4, verses 12 to 25 The Beginning of Christ's Ministry and the Calling of the First Disciples This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne Matthew 4, verses 12 to 25 Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea-coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Nephtalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Elias the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, and the land of Nephtalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and they straightway left their nets, and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship, and their father, and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness, and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. We have in these verses the beginning of our Lord's ministry among men. He enters on his labors among a dark and ignorant people. He chooses men to be his companions and disciples. He confirms his ministry by miracles, which rouse the attention of all Syria, and draw multitudes to hear him. Let us notice the way in which our Lord commenced his mighty work. He began to preach. There is no office so honorable as that of the preacher. There is no work so important to the souls of men. It is an office which the Son of God was not ashamed to take up. It is an office to which he appointed his twelve apostles. It is an office to which St. Paul, in his old age, specially directs Timothy's attention. He charges him with almost his last breath to preach the word. It is the means which God has always been pleased to use, above any other, for the conversion and edification of souls. The brightest days of the church have been those when preaching has been honored. The darkest days of the church have been those when it has been lightly esteemed. Let us honor the sacraments and public prayers of the church, and reverently use them. But let us beware that we do not place them above preaching. Let us notice the first doctrine which the Lord Jesus proclaimed to the world. He began to say, Repent. The necessity of repentance is one of the great foundations which lie at the very bottom of Christianity. It needs to be pressed on all mankind without exception. High or low, rich or poor, 
All have sinned and are guilty before God, and all must repent and be converted if they would be saved. And true repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin, a change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace, in a complete breaking off from sinful habits, and an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. Let us prize the doctrine highly. It is of the highest importance. No Christian teaching can be called sound, which does not constantly bring forward repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Let us notice the class of men whom the Lord Jesus chose to be his disciples. They were of the poorest and humblest rank in life. Peter and Andrew and James and John were all fishermen. The religion of our Lord Jesus Christ was not intended for the rich and learned alone. It was intended for all the world, and the majority of all the world will always be the poor. Poverty and ignorance of books excluded thousands from the notice of the boastful philosophers of the heathen world. They excluded no one from the highest place in the service of Christ. Is man humble? Does he feel his sin? Is he willing to hear Christ's voice and follow him? If this be so, he may be the poorest of the poor, but he shall be found as high as any in the kingdom of heaven. Intellect and money are worth nothing without grace. The religion of Christ must have been from heaven, or it never could have prospered and overspread the earth as it has done. It is vain for infidels to attempt to answer this argument. It cannot be answered. A religion which did not flatter the rich, the great, and the learned, a religion which offered no license to the carnal inclinations of man's heart, a religion whose first teachers were poor fishermen, without wealth, rank, or power, such a religion could never have turned the world upside down if it had not been of God. Look at the Roman emperors and the heathen priests with their splendid temples on the one side, Look at a few unlearned working men with the gospel on the other. Were there ever two parties so unequally matched? Yet the weak proved strong, and the strong proved weak. Heathenism fell, and Christianity took its place. Christianity must be of God. Let us notice in the last place the general character of the miracles by which our Lord confirmed his mission. Here we are told of them in the Mass. Hereafter we shall read many of them described particularly. And what is their character? They were miracles of mercy and kindness. Our Lord went about doing good. These miracles are meant to teach us our Lord's power. He that could heal sick people with a touch, and cast out devils with a word, is able to save to the uttermost all them that come unto God by him. He is Almighty. These miracles are meant to be types and emblems of our Lord's skill as a spiritual physician. He before whom no bodily disease proved incurable is mighty to cure every ailment of our souls. There is no broken heart that he cannot heal. There is no wound of conscience that he cannot cure. Fallen, crushed, bruised, plague-stricken as we all are by sin, Jesus by his blood and spirit can make us whole. Only let us go to him. These miracles, not least, are intended to show us Christ's heart. He is a most compassionate Saviour. He rejected no one who came to Him. He refused no one, however loathsome and diseased. 
He had an ear to hear all, and a hand to help all, and a heart to feel for all. There is no kindness like his. His compassions fail not. May we all remember that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. High in heaven at God's right hand, he is not in the least altered. He is just as able to save, just as willing to receive, just as ready to help, as he was eighteen hundred years ago. Should we have spread out our wants before him then? Let us do the same now. He can heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. End of section 8